0: Not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Vice President Johnson has become uh, the 36th president of the United States. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I haven't been told what I'm but, here but, for. I'm just a casualty. Shot! Shot! has been shot. Supporters of Israel's nuclear weapons program were, in fact, involved in the JFK assassination. There's only one person in the world that John Kennedy trusted unequivocally, and that was Robert Kennedy.
1: Obviously, I was there, but I don't
0: remember any of that.
1: After midnight, on the 6th of June 1968, Senator Robert Kennedy, candidate to the Presidency of the United States, was shot in a back room of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He had just been celebrating his victory at the California primaries, which made him the most likely Democratic nominee for the presidential election. Robert would probably have won against the Republican candidate Richard Nixon. At the age of 43, he would have become the youngest American president ever, after being the youngest attorney general. His death opened the way for Richard Nixon, who could finally become president eight years after being beaten by John F. Kennedy. John had been assassinated four years and a half before Robert. Had he survived, he would probably have been president until 1968 and his brother might have succeeded him. Instead of that, John's vice-president, Lyndon Johnson, took over the White House in 1963. He became so unpopular that he retired in 1968. Interestingly, Johnson became president the very day of John's death and ended his term a few months after Robert's death. He was in power at the time of both investigations. Both investigations are widely regarded as cover-ups. In each case, the official conclusion is rife with contradictions. We are going to sum them up in this film, but we will do more. We will show that the key to solving both cases resides in the link between them, and we will solve them beyond a reasonable doubt. Strangely, we rarely hear about the Kennedy assassinations as a plural. John's death in 1963 and Roberts' in 1968 are generally treated as two unconnected tragedies, rather than as serial murders. When both killings are connected, it is by the nonsensical notion of a curse on the Kennedy family rather than by the hypothesis of a common commissioner. This theme of the Kennedy curse, in which is included the plane accident that caused the life to John Kennedy Jr., is often associated to the alleged sins of John and Robert's father, Joseph Kennedy. A more rational explanation must take into account that John and Robert were more than just brothers. They were connected by an unshakable loyalty. All Kennedy biographers stress the absolute dedication of Robert to his elder brother. Robert had successfully managed John's campaign for the Senate in 1952, then his presidential campaign in 1960. John was deeply grateful for his support.
0: Uh, Great appreciation to my brother Bobby, who has directed all our primary campaigns and the organization in all of them, as he did in my campaign for the Senate in 1952. And, of course, he has been the most essential figure.
1: At the White House, John made Bobby not only his attorney general, but also his most trusted advisor, even on matters of foreign or military affairs. He insisted, for example, on having him nearby during the whole Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962.
0: Traditionally, attorneys general have nothing to do with foreign policy. But after the Bay of Pigs, John Kennedy really wanted Bobby by his side, helping him to make the decisions on everything. Because there was only one person in the world that John Kennedy trusted unequivocally, and that was Robert Kennedy.
1: Robert and John's communion of spirit struck their collaborators.
0: No sooner did one of them begin a sentence than the other knew what he was saying. They
1: understood each other so well that they talked in a kind of shorthand. Yet, Robert was very different from John. He was a sincerely religious man devoted to his family. He had got married at the age of 24, long before his elder brother. With his wife, Ethel, also a devout Catholic, he fathered 11 children.
0: My mother and my father shared a belief that we are on Earth for a short period of time and that we are actually children of God. We prayed every night that John Kennedy would be the best president ever and that my father would be the best attorney general ever.
1: What John most appreciated in Robert was his sense of justice and the integrity of his moral judgment. It is Robert, for example, who encouraged John to fully endorse the cause of the black civil rights movement.
0: We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures, and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. It was probably the first time in the history of our country that an American president would say that the question of civil rights, the question of a race, is a moral issue and he had the encouragement of Robert Kennedy to push him in this direction. Robert Kennedy was learning, he was growing. He said to me, John, I now understand. The young people have educated me. And you can see it, you can feel it. And Robert Kennedy during that period became so convinced not just as a politician, not just as the Attorney General, but as a human being. There was time for that to be some major steps to end racial discrimination in America.
1: Robert neither possessed John's charisma nor his ambition. After John's death, he felt that his brother's coat, which he had literally worn during his first month of mourning, was too big for him. When he finally decided to run for president in 1968, it was out of a sense of destiny to take up the torch of his brother's legacy. Robert knew that he was, in the eyes of millions of Americans, the legitimate heir to the murdered king, as well as his avenger. His public appearances led to displays of enthusiasm never seen before for a presidential candidate, and his total lack of concern for his own security only increased his prestige.
0: What sounded like shots turned out to be Chinese firecrackers. Bobby flinched, then went right on campaigning.
1: Given the exceptional bond between the Kennedy brothers and the unity between their presidential destinies, what are the odds that their assassinations were unrelated? Common sense suggests that they were killed by the same force and for the same motives, and that Robert was eliminated from the presidential race because he had to be prevented from reaching a position where he could reopen the case of his brother's death. Was there in 1968 any objective reason to believe that he intended to do that? That is the first question we must answer. Did Robert Kennedy plan to reopen the investigation on his brother's assassination? That question has been positively answered by David Talbot in his book Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, published in 2007 by Simon & Schuster. Talbot shows that Robert had never believed in the conclusion of the Warren Commission report that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole assassin of his brother. His son, Robert Kennedy Jr., recently confirmed it. Knowing what to expect from Johnson, Robert had refused to testify before the Warren Commission, but he was compelled to write a statement saying that he knew of quote, "...no credible evidence to support the allegations that the assassination of President Kennedy was caused by a domestic or foreign conspiracy." End of quote. To his close friends who asked him why he wouldn't voice his doubt publicly, he said, "...there is nothing I can do about it, not now." Robert was alienated and closely monitored by the new President Lyndon Johnson and his friend FBI Director Edgar Hoover. Although still officially Attorney General, he knew he was powerless against the forces that had killed his brother. Yet Robert lost no time to start his own investigation. A mere week after JFK’s death, November 29, Bill Walton, a friend of the Kennedys, traveled to Moscow, and passed to Nikita Khrushchev via a trusted agent a message from Robert and Jacqueline Kennedy. According to the memo found in the Soviet archives in the 1990s by Alexander Furusenko and Timothy Naftali, Robert and Jackie wanted to inform the Soviet leader that they believed John Kennedy had been, quote, the victim of a right-wing conspiracy, that only RFK could implement John Kennedy's vision, and that the cooling that might occur in U.S.-Soviet relations because of Johnson would not last forever. At the same time, Robert started his own investigations. He first asked CIA Director John McCone, a Kennedy friend, to find out if rogue agents within the agency had anything to do with the plot. Then, in March 1964, suspecting a vengeance from organized crime, he contacted mobster Jimmy Offa, his sworn enemy, whom he had battled for 10 years and whom he suspected of having taken revenge on his brother. A face-to-face encounter was organized between the two men on an airport runway and Robert came out convinced of Alpha's innocence Robert also asked his friend Daniel Moynihan to search for any complicity in the Secret Service responsible for the President's security. With the publication of the Warren Commission report, Robert had the confirmation that he could not expect anything from his government as long as Johnson was in power. He also knew that his own investigations were under surveillance. He contacted a former MI6 officer that he knew from the time his father had been ambassador in London. This British officer, in turn, contacted some trusted friends in France. With the tacit support of Charles de Gaulle, arrangements were made for two French intelligence operatives to conduct, over a three-year period, a quiet investigation that involved hundreds of interviews in the United States. Their report, replete with innuendo about Lyndon Johnson and right-wing Texas oil barons, was delivered to Bobby Kennedy only a month before his own assassination in June of 1968. After Bobby's death, the last surviving brother, Senator Ted Kennedy, showed no interest in the material. The investigators then hired a French writer to edit the material into a book under the pen name of James Hepburn. The book was first published in French under the title L'Amérique Brûle, then in English under the title Farewell America. Robert Kennedy had planned to run for the American presidency in 1972, but the escalation of the Vietnam War precipitated his decision to run in 1968.
0: I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States.
1: Another factor may have been the opening of the investigation by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison in 1967. Garrison was allowed to view Abraham Zapruder's 8mm film confiscated by the FBI on the day of the assassination. This film, despite evident tampering, shows that the fatal shot came from the front of the President and therefore not from the School Book Depository located behind him where Oswald was supposed to be shooting from.
0: I looked at the wound again. I wanted to know and remember this the rest of my life. And the rest of my life I will always know he was shot from the front. The Warren Commission investigation concluded the shots came only from behind. Dr. Crenshaw says they're wrong. The bullet struck about where and passed about where. From here. Right. Through.
1: Although the official reports suppressed their testimonies, many witnesses said that shots were fired from behind a fence on what is known as the grassy knoll, which was on the right front of the limousine at the moment of the shooting. Pourtant, au cours de son enquête, la commission Warren a écarté toutes les preuves de coups de feu provenant du grassy knoll. Mais les témoignages sont là. The shot
0: came from behind the wooden fence. There's no doubt whatsoever in my mind.
1: Garrison would later claim that Robert gave him a discreet message of support through a common friend, letting him know that he was going to, quote, blow the whole thing wide open when he is president. Robert also confided to his friend William Atwood, then editor of Luke magazine, that he, like Garrison, suspected a conspiracy, but that he couldn't do anything until he gets control of the White House. In conclusion, there can be little doubt that had he been elected president, Robert Kennedy would have done everything possible to reopen the case of his brother's assassination in one way or another. This certainly did not escape John's murderers. They had no other option but to stop him. This first conclusion is a sufficient reason to conduct a comparative analysis of both Kennedy assassinations in search of some converging clues that might lead us on the track of a common mastermind. Let us begin with Robert's assassination and let us first focus on the very special profile of his alleged killer. Just hours after Robert's assassination, the press was able to inform the American people not only of the identity of the assassin, but also of his motive and even of his detailed biography. 24-year-old Siran Bishara Siran was born in Jordania and had moved to the United States when his family had been expelled from West Jerusalem in 1948. After the shooting, a newspaper clipping was found in Siran's pocket, quoting a favorable statement made by Robert Kennedy regarding the selling of military aircrafts to Israel. Handwritten notes by Siran found in a notebook at his home confirmed that his act had been premeditated and motivated by his hatred of Israel. That became the storyline of the mainstream media from day one. Jerry Cohen of the Los Angeles Times wrote a front-page article saying that Siran is "quote and a young man with a supreme hatred for the state of Israel. Cohen infers that Senator Kennedy became a personification of that hatred because of his recent pro-Israeli statements. Cohen further claimed to have learned from Los Angeles Mayor Samuel Yorty that about three weeks before shooting Robert Kennedy, Siran wrote a memo to himself saying... Kennedy must be assassinated before June 5, 1968, that is, the first anniversary of the Six-Day War in which Israel humiliated three Arab neighbors, Egypt, Syria and Jordan. After September 11, 2001, Americans were reminded of Syria as a precursor of Islamic terrorism on the American soil and his act was installed into the war on terror mythology and propaganda. In a book entitled The Forgotten Terrorist, Mail Ayton, who specializes in debunking conspiracy theories, claims to present, quote, a wealth of evidence about Siran's fanatical Palestinian nationalism and to demonstrate that Siran was a lone assassin whose politically motivated act was a forerunner of present-day terrorism, end of quote. In 2008, on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of Bobby's murder, the Jewish Daily Forward wrote, Robert Kennedy was the first American victim of modern Arab terrorism. One cannot help but note the parallel between Kennedy's assassination and the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. In both tragic cases, Arab fanaticism reared its ugly head on American soil, irrevocably changing the course of events in this country. End of quote. Writing for the Boston Globe, Sasha Isenberg recalled that the death of Robert Kennedy was, quote, a first taste of the political violence in the Middle East. He quotes Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz as saying it was perceived as an act of violence motivated by hatred of Israel and of anybody who supported Israel. It was in some ways the beginning of Islamic terrorism in America. It was the first shot. End of quote. The fact that Siran was from a Christian family was lost on Dershowitz. The Jewish forward took care to mention it, only to add that Islamic fanaticism ran in his veins anyway. But what he shared with his Muslim cousins, the perpetrators of September 11, was a visceral, irrational hatred of Israel. There is something suspicious in this insistence on making the assassination of Robert Kennedy a crime against Israel. But let us, for the moment, take these declarations seriously, and let us try to understand what kind of anti Zionist Palestinian terrorist was Siran Siran. While studying his case more closely, perhaps we can learn something about the very nature of the Arab terrorism that has now become a familiar leitmotif of the mainstream narrative in our post 9 11 world. The first question is Did Siran really kill Robert Kennedy? Ballistic and forensic evidence show that, in fact, none of Siran's bullets hit Kennedy. According to the autopsy report of Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who confirms it in his memoirs, Robert Kennedy was hit by three bullets, while a fourth went through his coat. All these bullets were shot from behind Kennedy, two of them under his right armpit following an upward angle, and the third, the fatal bullet, behind his right ear at point-blank range.
0: One uh, gunshot wound was found behind the right ear, and uh, there were abundance of uh, powder uh, deposit on the edge of the uh, right ear, and uh, after test firing uh, the similar weapon, we came to conclusion that the muzzle distance would be as, uh, one inch from the right uh, ear edge and, and no more than three inches.
1: Yet, the sworn testimonies of 12 witnesses established that Robert had never turned his back on Siran and that Siran was 5 to 6 feet away from his target when he fired. Moreover, Siran was physically overpowered by Carl Ucker after his second shot. And, although he continued pressing the trigger mechanically, his revolver was then not directed towards Kennedy. By tallying all the bullet impacts in the pantry and those that wounded five people around Kennedy, it can be established that at least 12 bullets were fired, while Siran's gun carried only eight. Finally, a computer analysis of audio recordings during the shooting made by engineer Philippe van Praag in 2008 confirms that two guns are heard.
0: Thirteen shot sounds over a little bit over five seconds. Uh, interval of time. And there are two shots and then a pause of about one and a third seconds and then a flurry of succeeding shots. The primary point that people need to recall is that the capacity of Sirhan's gun was eight shots. He did not have time to reload and so anything more than eight shots proves there had to be a second gun firing within that kitchen pantry, period. We have uh strong evidence uh, uh, based upon this audio tape of thirteen shots two double shots the make and the model of the gun and the directionality of those shots uh, into the back of robert kennedy
1: all this evidence has been gathered by attorney william pepper in a fifty eight page file submitted in two thousand eleven to the court of california with a request that Sirens' case be reopened bob was hit with
0: four bullets were fired at him from the rear, from the rear. Now, two went through—one through the shoulder pad and one through the chest cavity—that lodged in uh, a, uh, a ceiling tile that was actually behind Sirhan, where Sirhan was uh, was standing. So the the senator, the sh- the shots from the senator were from behind, and uh, and the the tracing of the bullets was slightly upward. So that's where the assassin uh... W- was firing and that's where he was standing behind the senator and we have a view
1: as to who that person was but a good deal more uh, uh, a good deal more p- probing and uh, evidentiary work has to be done if Siran did not kill robert kennedy then who did the presence of a second shooter was indicated by several witnesses and reported on the same day by a few news
0: outlets Ici at Paris, d'après les informations que nous transmettent les agences de presse, oui. on dit qu'il y, en aurait, qu'il y en aurait deux.
1: There are strong suspicions that the second shooter was Thane Eugene Caesar, a security guard hired for the evening by the Hotel Ambassador owned by Meyer Schein. Caesar was stuck behind Kennedy at the time of shooting. Several witnesses saw him draw his pistol, and one of them, Don Schulman, positively saw him fire.
0: As we were slowly pushed forward, another man stepped out, and he shot. Just then the guard who was standing behind Kennedy took out his gun, and he fired also. The next thing I knew is that Kennedy was shot three times. Now, how far was Sir Han uh, from Senator Kennedy at the time? I would say approximately from three to six feet. Where was this guard who was firing his gun? He was standing directly the side and back of Kennedy. On what side? He was standing on the right-hand side. Contract killer could not find a more efficient and concealed position to do his deed. First, a clear opening to shoot at the heart, with little chance to be seen by witnesses situated either in front of or behind the victim. Then another opportunity for a concealed coup de grace in the back of the head as the victim slumps to the floor.
1: Incredibly, Caesar's weapon was never examined, and he was never interrogated, even though he did not conceal his hatred for the Kennedys. He told police he had sold his 22 three months before the assassination. The receipt proves that it was sold after the assassination. The person who made out this receipt confirmed Caesar told him at the time of the sale, be careful of this weapon, it was involved in a police shooting. He was the obvious first suspect. The police brushed him off and never investigated him further. Even if we assume that Siran was the assassin of Robert Kennedy, another aspect of the case raises question. According to several witnesses, Siran seemed to be in a state of trance during the shooting and in a state of disorientation just after. More importantly, Siran has always claimed that he has never had any recollection of his act, even though, on the suggestion of his attorney, he admitted to have done it. For this, he was sentenced to death penalty. But the death penalty was abolished in California soon after, and his sentence was turned into life imprisonment. Fifty years after the fact, Siran continues to claim I not only have never been able to remember what happened in that place at that time, but I have not been able to remember many things and incidents which took place in the weeks leading up to the shooting.
0: What do you remember about the shooting, if you're willing to talk about that? I I was,
1: obviously I was there, but I don't remember the exact moment, I don't, don't remember pulling my gun. Uh, out of my body or wherever it was located, and I don't remember aiming at any human being. I don't remember any of that. Since 1968, several psychiatric analyses, including lie detector tests, have confirmed that C.R.A.N.'s amnesia is not faked. Therefore, experts in hypnosis and mental manipulation believe that C.R.A.N. has been submitted to hypnotic programming. It was obvious that he had been uh, programmed to kill Robert Kennedy and programmed to forget that he'd been programmed. This hypothesis is consistent with some repetitive lines written in a notebook found in Siran's room, which are reminiscent of automatic writing. In 2008, Harvard University professor Daniel Brown, a noted expert in hypnosis and trauma memory loss, interviewed Siran for a total of 60 hours. And concluded that Siran, who belongs to the category of high hypnotizables, acted involuntarily under the effect of hypnotic suggestion. His action of firing the gun was neither under his voluntary control nor done with conscious knowledge, but is likely a product of automatic hypnotic behavior and coercive control. End of quote. During his sessions with Dr. Brown, Siran could remember having been accompanied by an attractive woman before suddenly finding himself in a shooting range with a weapon he did not know. According to Brown's report, quote, Siran responded to a specific hypnotic cue given to him by that woman to enter range mode, during which Siran automatically and involuntarily responded with a flashback that he was shooting at a firing range at circle targets, end of quote. Months after Siran recalled these details, attorney William Pepper was able to prove that, just days before the assassination, Siran had visited a firing range accompanied by an unknown instructor and had signed the register. With the help of Professor Brown, Siran was also able to remember that his instructor had a falling moustache, which fits the description of famous hypnotist William Joseph Bryan Jr., whom other evidence also incriminates. Brian makes no secret of having worked for the Air Force in the brainwashing section. His biggest claim to fame was to have exposed by hypnosis the Boston Strangler, Albert DiSalvo, who thereafter confessed to the crime. Brian often bragged about it. This is significant because in the notebook found at Siran's home that Siran recognized to be in his own handwriting but that he cannot remember having written, we find this God help me, please help me, salvo, di, di salvo, di salvo It is surmised that he heard the name while under hypnosis
0: You have to have the person locked up physically to have control over them You have to use a certain amount of physical torture involved and there is also the use of um, uh, long-term hypnotic suggestion probably drugs whatever and so on under these situations where you have all this going for you like the prison camp and so on yes you can brainwash a person to do just about anything what i'm speaking about are the innumerable instances that we ran into when i was running the country's brainwashing and anti-brainwashing programs
1: We know that in the 1960s, American military agencies were experimenting on mental control. Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, son of Hungarian Jews, directed the infamous CIA MKUltra project, which, among other things, was trying to answer questions like, can a person under hypnosis be forced to commit murder? According to a declassified document dated May 1951, we also know that Siran was attending meetings of occultist circles practicing mental experiments, and this may have created opportunities to submit him to hypnotic programming. Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman has recently revealed that in May 1968, the month preceding Robert Kennedy's assassination, the Aman, the Israeli military intelligence, was planning to assassinate Yasser Arafat by hypnotically programming a Palestinian. The idea was proposed by a Navy psychologist named Benjamin Shalit, who claimed that, quote, if he was given a Palestinian prisoner, one of the thousands in Israeli jails, with the right characteristics, he could brainwash and hypnotize him into becoming a programmed killer. He would then be sent across the Jordan, join the Fatah there, and, when the opportunity arose, do away with Arafat, end of quote. The proposal was approved. Shalit selected a 28-year-old Palestinian from Bethlehem, whom he judged easily suggestionable. The operation failed, but it proved that in 1968, precisely, Israel was experimenting methods of assassination identical to the one used against Robert Kennedy. In the hypothesis that Siran has been manipulated, the question is, why him? Who had an interest in having people believe that Robert was killed by a fanatic Palestinian motivated by hatred of Israel? Israel, of course. But then we are faced with a dilemma. For why would Israel kill Robert Kennedy if Robert Kennedy was supportive of Israel? That would logically exclude Israel from the list of suspects. The dilemma rests on a misleading assumption, which is part of the deception. In reality, Robert Kennedy was not pro-Israel. He was simply in an electoral campaign. As everyone knows, a few good wishes and empty promises to Israel are an inescapable ritual in such circumstances. Robert's statements did not exceed the minimal requirements. It is claimed that Siran had in his pocket a newspaper clipping from the May 27 issue of Pasadena's Independent Star News, mentioning that Robert Kennedy had declared in an Oregon synagogue, quote, the United States should, without delay, sell Israel the 50 phantom jets she has so long been promised, end of quote. But the author of this article, David Lawrence, underlined how little credit should be given to Robert's electoral promises. His article, entitled Paradoxical Bob, began like this. Presidential candidates are out to get votes and some of them do not realize their own inconsistencies. All things considered, there is no ground for believing that Robert Kennedy would have been, as President of the United States, particularly friendly to Israel. The Kennedy family, proudly Irish and Catholic, was not known to be very appreciative of Jews. Joe Kennedy had been notoriously critical of Jewish influence during the Second World War. While ambassador in London from 1938 to 1940, he had supported the appeasement policy of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain toward Hitler. When Roosevelt was about to enter the war, he had resigned and declared that he intended, quote, to devote my effort to what seems to me the greatest cause in the world today, to help the president keep the U.S. out of the war, end of quote. During John's presidential campaign, Menahem Begin's party, Erud, wondered publicly if the father, Joe Kennedy, quote, did not inject some poisonous drops of anti-Semitism in the mind of his children, end of quote. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Profiles in Courage, published in 1956, Kennedy had declared his admiration for Senator Robert Taft, who, by calling the Nuremberg military trials of 1946 a shameful parody of justice, had sacrificed his political future. We will talk later about John Kennedy's tense relationship with the State of Israel. As for his brother, he had not been in his brother's government a particularly pro-Israel attorney general. He had infuriated Zionist leaders by supporting an investigation led by Senator William Fulbright of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations aimed at registering the American Zionist Council as a foreign agent, subject to the obligations defined by the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938, which would have considerably hindered its efficiency. After the assassination of John Kennedy, the American Zionist Council escaped this procedure and its lobbying division, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC, became the most powerful lobby in the United States and an indispensable instrument for the corruption and intimidation of American elected officials and for the control of American foreign policy. It was Nicholas Katzenbach, whom Johnson put at the head of the Department of Justice to replace Robert Kennedy, who buried the case against the American Zionist Council. Katzenbach is also known as having strongly recommended to the new president, Lyndon Johnson, a commission of inquiry to establish as soon as possible that Oswald was the only assassin of Kennedy. In conclusion, it is only by an outrageous hypocrisy that the Jewish Daily Forward could write on June 6, 2008, quote, in remembering Bobby Kennedy, let us remember not just what he lived for, but also what he died for, namely, the precious nature of the American-Israeli relationship, end of quote. Robert Kennedy's death had not been a bad thing for the American-Israeli relationship. As a U.S. president, would Robert have saved Israel from disaster in 1973, like Nixon and Kissinger, by providing her with unlimited military support against Egypt? It is unlikely. Rather, Robert Kennedy was a great loss for the Arab world, as had his brother John before him. Of course, the fact that the Zionist media lied when granting Robert Kennedy some kind of posthumous certificate of goodwill towards Israel and thereby provided Israel with a kind of fake alibi is not a sufficient reason for accusing Israel of having murdered Robert. Even the fact that the masterminds of the plot chose as their programmed instrument an anti-Zionist Palestinian and thereby stirred a strong anti-Palestinian feeling among Americans at the same time as getting rid of Robert, does not prove that Israel was involved. What is lacking for a serious presumption is a plausible motive, and the motive of Robert's assassination, as we said before, must be found not in what Robert was declaring publicly during his campaign, but rather in what he confided only to his close friends, his intention to reopen the investigation on his brother's death. What would an unbiased investigation conducted under the supervision of Robert in the White House have revealed? This is what we must now determine. It is obvious for any person, even vaguely informed, that a genuine investigation would prove that Oswald was only the unwilling instrument of the plotters, a scapegoat prepared in advance to be blamed for the crime and then be slaughtered without a trial.
0: I'm just a patsy!
1: We will not here review the evidence which contradicts the official thesis of The Lone Gunner. They can be found in numerous other books and films. Just as notorious is the theory according to which the plot to kill Kennedy originated from the CIA, or rather from a secret network within the CIA in collusion with extremist elements in the Pentagon. That thesis looms the largest among conspiracy theories found in books, articles and films that have been produced for 50 years since the Kennedy assassination. Rather than examining one by one all the arguments of this theory, we shall here trace back its origin. If the trail of the CIA is such a well-trodden path among Kennedy researchers, it is because it has been cut and marked by the mainstream media themselves, as well as by Hollywood. And that began even before the assassination, on October 2, 1963, with an article in the Washington Daily News picked up by the New York Times' chief Washington correspondent Arthur Crock. The article denounced the CIA's unrestrained thirst for power, and quoted an unnamed very high official who claimed that, quote, even the White House could not control it any longer, and that if the United States ever experiences an attempt at a coup to overthrow the government, it will come from the CIA and not from the Pentagon, end of quote. Without saying so, Kroc was letting his readers believe that the very high official whom he quoted was none other than the president himself, who was sending a message to the public via the press, In such a way, the New York Times was planting a sign a month and a half before the Dallas killing, pointing to the CIA as the most likely instigator of the upcoming coup. The sign said the president is going to fall victim of a coup and this will come from the CIA. In the 1970s, the mainstream media and publishing houses again played a major role in steering conspiracy theorists toward the CIA trail while avoiding any hint of Israeli involvement. One major contributor to that effort was the Israeli-American Alan Weberman, a close associate to Jewish defense organization, with his 1975 book Coup d'Etat in America, The CIA and the Assassination of John F. Kennedy, co-authored by Michael Canfield. Weberman acknowledged Richard Pearl's assistance in his investigation. This book contributed to the momentum that led the House Select Committee on Assassinations to reinvestigate, in 1976, the murders of JFK and Dr. Martin Luther King with a special focus on the CIA and organized crime. It is also in this context that Newsweek journalist Edward J. Epstein published an interview of George de Morenchild, a Russian geologist and consultant for Texan Oilman, who had befriended Oswald and his Russian wife in Dallas in 1962. De Morenchild admitted that Oswald was introduced to him at the instigation of a CIA agent. The problem is that de Morenchild was in no position to confirm or deny the words that Epstein ascribed to him. He was found dead a few hours after giving the interview. The Morinchil's death was ruled a suicide. The sheriff's report mentions that in his last month, he complained that, quote, the Jews and the Jewish mafia were out to get him. Needless to say, Epstein didn't mention anything about this. We should also mention author Mark Lane, Levin by his real name. He was the first to incriminate the FBI and the CIA directly in his articles and then in a 1966 book, Rush to Judgment, which received considerable media coverage. Lane was adamant that the CIA was a culprit in his last book published in 2011, Last Word, My Indictment of the CIA in the Murder of JFK. That Israeli agents had been instrumental in spreading conspiracy theories targeting the CIA has become evident with Oliver Stone's film JFK, released in 1991, starring Kevin Costner in the role of District Attorney Jim Garrison. This film, which shook public opinion to the point of motivating the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, was produced by Arnon Milchan, described in a 2011 biography as being from his youth quote, one of the most important covert agents that Israeli intelligence has ever fielded. Milchan was working in particular to boost Israel's nuclear program. In 2013, Milchan publicly revealed his extended activity as a secret agent of Israel. It is therefore no wonder that Stone's film gives no hint of the Mossad connection that Garrison had stumbled upon. All these examples demonstrate that the charges against the CIA have been the subject of considerable investment by others who are predominantly Jewish and benefited from an effective eco-chamber in the mainstream press. The mainstream news and entertainment industry engaged in double-dealing. While ostensibly defending the official theory of the lone gunner on the front page, they channeled the skeptic scrutiny towards the CIA. This is a typical strategy of Israel, occupying the ground of protest and creating a rigged debate excluding any reference to Israel. The contradiction of the official thesis is maintained focused on the CIA, the military-industrial complex or any other 100% American organization by an elite of militants whose primary motivation is the preservation of the interest of the Jewish community. In fact, the CIA conspiracy theory suffers from a crippling contradiction. According to it, the purpose of killing Kennedy was to create a pretext for invading Cuba, something that Kennedy had always refused to do. With Oswald groomed as a pro-Castro-Communist, the Dallas shooting was staged as a false flag attack to be blamed on Cuba, according to the CIA theory. But then, why did no invasion of Cuba follow Kennedy's assassination? It is because Johnson, we are told, thwarted the plot's ultimate aim to start World War III. This is to ignore the tremendous amount of evidence accumulated against Johnson. In fact, I believe the CIA thesis was originally pushed forward to counter the more natural and more popular thesis of a conspiracy headed by Johnson with Hoover's complicity. Another weakness in the CIA theory is the fact that researchers following this lead seem unable to come to any agreement about the mastermind of the plot. In fact, one of the names that come up most often is James Jesus Angleton, the head of counterintelligence within the CIA. Professor John Newman writes about him in Oswald and the CIA quote, No one else in the agency had the access, the authority, and the diabolically ingenious mind to manage this sophisticated plot. But, as a matter of fact, Angleton was also the Mossad liaison for the CIA, as head of the CIA's Israel office, and he is widely recognized as having been an Israeli mole. One of his biographers, Tom Mangold, states, Angleton's closest professional friends overseas came from the Mossad, and he was held in immense esteem by his Israeli colleagues and by the State of Israel, which was to award him profound honors after his death. Moreover, it has been revealed by reporter Joe Trento of the Sunday News Journal that it was Angleton himself who, in the 70s, played a key role in keeping the CIA under scrutiny by leaking to the press a secret memo he had written himself about the embarrassing presence of CIA agent Howard Hunt in Dallas on November 22, 1963. By a strange paradox, the authors who stand for the conventional thesis of a CIA conspiracy build their case on the biography of Oswald, while at the same time claiming that Oswald had almost nothing to do with the killing. It is about as useful as scrutinizing Osama bin Laden's biography to solve 9-11. If Oswald was just a patsy, as he claimed, the quest for the real culprits must logically begin by investigating the man who shot Oswald two days after his arrest in the Dallas police station, thus preventing a judgment that would have revealed the weakness of the accusation against Oswald. Oswald's assassin is known as Jack Ruby, but few people know that his real name was Jacob Leon Rubinstein that he was the son of Jewish-Polish immigrants, and that, to the Warren Commission, he had explained his presence in the police station as a Yiddish translator for Israeli reporters. Originally from Chicago, Ruby was a member of the Jewish underworld, known as the Yiddish Connection. His mentor was Los Angeles gangster Mickey Cohen, whom he had known and admired since 1946. Cohen was the successor of the famed Benjamin Siegelbaum, known as Buxy, one of the bosses of Murder Incorporated, the most brutal crime syndicate in the US. Mickey Cohen was in contact with Menahem Begin, the former Irgun chief, a specialist of false-like terrorism. Cohen was infatuated with the Zionist cause, as he explained in his memoir, Quote, Now I got so engrossed with Israel that I actually pushed aside a lot of my activities and done nothing but what was involved with this Irgun war, end of quote. We also know that Ruby phoned Al Gruber, a Mickey Cohen associate, just after Oswald's arrest. Most probably, that is when he received an offer that he couldn't refuse, for reasons possibly linked to his heavy debt. Ruby died from a rapidly spreading cancer in 1967, so he wouldn't have been around for a new trial under Robert Kennedy's presidency. Yet his Irgun connections and some of his recorded statements were highly disturbing. Ruby's defense lawyer, William Kunstler, wrote in his memoir that Ruby told him he had killed Oswald, quote, for the Jews, and Ruby's rabbi, Hillel Silverman, received the same confession when visiting Ruby in jail. Ruby is only an intermediary link in a conspiracy that begins with the ambush of Dallas, extends to the cover-up of the Warren Commission, and involves a pact of silence with the directions of the major media. At every level of the conspiracy, we find the fingerprints of the Israeli deep state. Let's begin with the Dallas ambush. JFK's trip to Dallas had no official character and was sponsored by a powerful business group known as the Dallas Citizens' Council. Kennedy was on his way to the reception organized in his honor when he was shot. The Dallas Citizens' Council was a powerful group, dominated by Jewish businessmen like the wealthy Julius Sheps described by Brian Edward Stone in The Chosen Folks, Jews on the Frontiers of Texas, as, quote, a member of every synagogue in the city and de facto leader of the Jewish community, And of quote. Abraham Zapruder, the man who filmed the assassination of John Kennedy and sold his film for $150,000 to Life magazine, was also a member of the Dallas Citizens Council. He was a clothing manufacturer whose headquarters happened to be located in the Dallas Textile Building, or Daltex, where one of the snipers' nests was located, according to JFK researchers who have studied the firing trajectories. Interviewed the same day on television, Zapruder could not hide his satisfaction. The host committee, inviting Kennedy, was chaired by another influential figure of the wealthy Jewish community in Dallas, advertising executive and PR man Sam Bloom. According to former British intelligence officer, Colonel John Hugh Wilson, it was Bloom who, quote, suggested that the police make Oswald accessible to the press. He also suggested, against the explicit advice of the local FBI, that they move the alleged assassin from the Dallas police station to the Dallas County Jail in order to give the newsman a good story and pictures, end of quote. It was during this transfer that Oswald was shot by Ruby. Hugh Wilson also writes, When the police later searched Ruby's home, they found a slip of paper with Bloom's name, address, and telephone number on it. After the Dallas tragedy, Israel's cyanim were also busy fabricating the official lie. Apart from the chairman, Earl Warren, chosen for his figurative role as chief justice, all key people in the investigative commission were either personal enemies of Kennedy, like Alan Dulles, the CIA director fired by Kennedy in 1961, or ardent Zionists, like Arlen Specter, who, at his death in 2012, was mourned by the Israeli government as, quote, an unswerving defensor of the Jewish state, end of quote. Alan Spector was the inventor of what came to be called the magic bullet theory, a single bullet supposed to have caused seven wounds to John Kennedy and John Connolly sitting before him in the limousine and later found in pristine condition on a gurney in Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. In conclusion, at every step of the plot, we find a Zionist cabal, including businessmen, politicians and gangsters, not forgetting media executives, all devoted to Israel. The most plausible motive for Israel to kill Kennedy has been revealed by two books in the 1990s, The Samson Option by Seymour Hersh, then Israel and the Bomb by Avner Cohen. And the lead has been followed up in 2007 by Michael Carpin in The Bomb in the Basement. What these investigators reveal is that John Kennedy, informed by the CIA in 1960 that Israel was developing its own nuclear weapons in the Dimona complex in the Negev desert, was firmly determined to force Israel to renounce it, and engaged in a showdown with David Ben-Gurion, who was both Israel's prime minister and defense minister. Ben-Gurion was convinced that by trying to prevent Israel from acquiring the bomb, Kennedy was endangering the very survival of the Jewish state, to which he had devoted his entire life. Ben Gurion wrote in one of his last letters to JFK, Mr. President, my people has a right to exist, and this existence is in danger. Kennedy, however, remained unyielding. In a letter dated June 15, 1963, he demanded an immediate first visit, followed by regular visits every sixth month. Otherwise, he wrote, this government's commitment to and support of Israel could be seriously jeopardized. The result was unexpected. Ben-Gurion avoided receiving the letter by announcing his resignation on June 16. As soon as a new Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, took office, Kennedy sent him a similar letter, dated June 5, 1963, but never got an answer. Did Ben-Gurion resign in order to deal with Kennedy from a deeper level? This is not implausible, because 11 days after resigning, Ben-Gurion was more committed than ever to provide Israel with the nuclear weapon. He said in a speech, I do not know of any other nation whose neighbors declare that they wish to terminate it and not only declare but prepare for it by all means available to them. Our numbers are small and there is no chance that we could compare ourselves with America's 180 million or with any Arab neighboring state. There is one thing, however, in which we are not inferior to any other people in the world. This is the Jewish brain. And the Jewish brain does not disappoint. Jewish science does not disappoint I am confident that science is able to provide us with the weapons that will serve the peace and deter our enemies end of quote five months later Kennedy's death relieved Israel of all pressure to stop its nuclear program and of all risk of publicity on this program. John McCone the CIA director named by Kennedy to inform him about Israel's Dimona Project resigned in 1965 complaining about Johnson's complete lack of interest. According to historian Stephen Green, perhaps the most significant development of 1963 for the Israeli nuclear weapons program occurred on November 22. On a plane flying from Dallas to Washington, D.C., Indon Jensen was sworn in as the 36th president of the United States following the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Lyndon Jensen's White House saw no dimona, heard no dimona, and spoke no demona when the reactor went critical in early 1964, end of quote. Kennedy's determination to make Israel's Dimona project abort was only part of the Kennedy problem. Kennedy had committed himself to Arab heads of state to support UN Resolution 1994 for the right of return of the 800,000 Palestinian refugees expelled in 1947-48. For the last time on November 20, 1963, the United States delegation to the United Nations put this issue back on the agenda, causing a strong protest in Israeli circles. On top of that, since the first month of his presidency, Kennedy behaved very warmly toward Nasser, Israel's worst enemy. Historian Philip Muhlenbeck writes... While the Eisenhower administration had sought to isolate Nasser and reduce his influence through building up Saudi Arabia's King Saud as a conservative rival to the Egyptian president, the Kennedy administration pursued the exact opposite strategy. After Kennedy's death, American foreign policy was reversed again, without the American public being aware of it. Johnson cut the economic aid to Egypt and increased the military aid to Israel, which, according to Stephen Green, reached $92 million in 1966, more than the total of all previous years combined. For 50 years, the Israeli trail in the Kennedy assassination has been smothered, and anyone who dares mention it is immediately ostracized. American Congressman Paul Findlay nevertheless wrote in March 1992 in the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, It is interesting to note that in all the words written and uttered about the Kennedy assassination, Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad, has never been mentioned. End of quote. One single author has seriously investigated that trail. Michael Collins Piper, in his 1995 book Final Judgment, The Missing Link in the JFK Assassination Conspiracy. Piper was largely ignored by the mainstream of the Kennedy Truth Movement, but his work has made a strong impact. In twenty thirteen, in his foreword to a collection of letters by Kennedy, including those addressed to Ben Gurion about Dimona, Martin Sandler writes about Piper's work of all the conspiracy theories, it remains one of the most intriguing. End of quote. It is in fact a theory widespread in Arab countries. Libyan leader Muhammad Galafi believed it. <laughs> وأصر على تفتيش ليتأكد من أنه يصنع أسلحة ذرية وإلا لا ورفض الإسرائيليون وأخيراً أصر هو على التفتيش كان المخرج من هذه الأزمة هو استقالة بنغوريون استقال حتى لا يوافق على تفتيش مفاعل ديموني واعطى الظهول أخمر بقتل كندي <laughs> On September 23, 2009, Qadhafi had the guts to demand a new investigation in front of the General Assembly of the United Nations. Several investigators have identified Lyndon Johnson as the mastermind of the Kennedy assassination. It is beyond doubt that the plotters acted with the foreknowledge that Johnson, who immediately stepped in as head of state after Kennedy's death, would cover them. The context of national crisis enabled Johnson to bully both justice and the press while achieving his life's ambition. Johnson not just benefited from the plot, he participated in its elaboration. As a former senator from Texas, he could mobilize high-ranked accomplices in Dallas to prepare the ambush. Johnson also exerted a tight control on the Navy, where he had obtained the privilege to name his Texan partners as Navy Secretary, first John Connolly in 1961, then Fred Korth one year later. Johnson's connection to the Navy is an important aspect of the case because it is under the control of Navy officers that Kennedy's counterfeit autopsy was performed in Washington after his body had been literally robbed at gunpoint from Parkland Hospital in Dallas. The autopsy report from the Navy Hospital stated that the fatal bullet had entered the back of Kennedy's skull in contradiction to the unanimous testimonies of the Dallas hospital staff. Contrary to a widespread but erroneous belief, Lee Harvey Oswald had been recruited not by the CIA but by the Navy. He was a Marine, and as a Marine he had worked for the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI. Johnson had actually taken advantage of his connections in the Navy to participate in the greatest corruption ever recorded at that time. His accomplice, Fred Corth, was forced to resign as Navy Secretary in November 1963, only weeks before the Dallas coup, after the Justice Department, headed by Robert Kennedy, had implicated him in a fraud involving a $7 billion contract for the construction of 1,700 TFX military aircraft by General Dynamics, a Texas company. Johnson's personal secretary, Bobby Baker, was charged in the same case, and the scandal was about to blow up on Johnson's face. Because of this mounting scandal and other suspicions of corruption, Kennedy was determined to change vice president for his upcoming reelection campaign. While in Dallas, the day before the president's visit, Richard Nixon publicized the rumor of Johnson's removal, as the Dallas Morning News reported on the morning of November 22. Instead, Johnson became president that very day. Many Americans immediately suspected Johnson's involvement in the Dallas coup, and all the more after the publication in 1964 of a book by James Evitz Halley, a Texan look at Lyndon which portrayed Johnson as a man of unlimited ambition and corruption. According to his biographer, Robert Carroll, Johnson had, quote, a hunger for power so fierce and consuming that no consideration of morality or ethics, no cost to himself or to anyone else could stand before it. Robert Kennedy himself suspected Johnson, whom he had always despised and mistrusted. He is reported as saying, Johnson lies all the time. I'm just telling you, he just lies continuously about everything. In every conversation I have with him, he lies. As I have said, he lies even when he doesn't have to. End of quote. Through the years, a great amount of evidence and testimonies have been gathered against Johnson in the killing of John Kennedy. The evidence incriminating Johnson does not conflict with the evidence against Israel. Both trails converge in the person of Jack Ruby, The hypothesis that Ruby acted with knowledge of Johnson's involvement is a likely explanation for some of his odd statements to the Warren Commission. He insisted on being brought to Washington to speak directly to Johnson and added, There will be a certain tragic occurrence happening if you don't take my testimony and somehow vindicate me so my people don't suffer because of what I had done. End of quote. He said that he feared that his act would be used quote, to create some falsehood about some of the Jewish faith End of quote. but added that quote, maybe something can be saved if our president Lyndon Johnson knew the truth from me. End of quote. Ruby seemed to have attempted to send a message to Johnson through the commission or rather a warning that he might spill the beans about Israel's implication if Johnson did not intervene in his favor. We get the impression that Ruby expected Johnson to get him out of prison, just as in 1952 Johnson had managed to avoid prison for his killer Malcolm Wallace, although found guilty of first-degree murder on Johnson's sister's lover who had tried to blackmail Johnson. Yet Johnson did nothing to get Ruby out of jail, and Ruby was sentenced for life. Ruby's sense of betrayal explains why, in 1965, after giving a brief press conference, Ruby implicitly accused Johnson of Kennedy's murder. I want to correct what I've said before. He was vice president, remember?
0: Was vice president? Yes, I did. When I was about Adelaide Stevens, because he was vice president. There would never have been any no falsification of our beloved like, president. Well, the answer is the man in now.
1: Ruby's full statement to the Warren Commission was leaked to journalist Dorothy Kilgallen and published in the New York Journal American in August 1964. Kilgallen also interviewed Jack Ruby and boasted afterwards of being about to break the real story and publish The Biggest Scoop in the Century. But Kilkallen was found dead by an overdose of barbiturates and alcohol on November 8, 1965. As for Ruby, he was put into solitary confinement and he died in 1967, officially from a rapidly spreading cancer. Jack Ruby is not the only element connecting Johnson to Israel, far from it. In truth, Johnson had always been Israel's man. His electoral campaigns had been funded since 1948 by Zionist financier Abraham Feinberg, president of the fundraising organization Americans for Haggadah Incorporated, and a key financier in the Dimona Project. It is the same Abraham Feinberg who, after the democratic primaries in 1960, made the following proposal to Kennedy, as Kennedy himself reported to his friend Charles Bartlett. We know your campaign is in trouble. We are willing to pay your bills if you let us have control of your Middle East policy. It was also two strong supporters of Israel, Washington Post publisher Philip Graham and his main columnist Joseph Alsop, who finally convinced Kennedy to take Johnson as his running mate. Most probably, they blackmailed Kennedy with proofs of his adulterous adventures, of which Edgar Hoover, a close friend of Johnson, was well informed. According to Evelyn Lincoln, Kennedy's personal secretary for 12 years, quote, Jack knew that Hoover and LBJ would just fill the air with womanizing, end of quote. Whatever the real nature of the blackmail, Kennedy once apologized to his assistant Hyman Ruskin, saying, You know we had never considered Lyndon, but I was left with no choice. Those bastards were trying to frame me. They threatened me with problems, and I don't need more problems. And so it is that John was forced to choose Johnson as vice president by the Zionist network, despite the fierce opposition of his brother Robert. In 2013, Associated Press reported about newly released tapes from Johnson's White House office showing LBJ's personal and often emotional connection to Israel. An article from the Five Towns Jewish Times, running under the title Our First Jewish President, Lyndon Johnson, elaborates on that end. And after recalling Johnson's continuous support of Jews and Israel in the 40s and 50s, then his role in the crafting of the pro-Israel UN Resolution 242 in November 67 concludes... President Johnson firmly pointed American policy in a pro-Israel direction. In a historical context, the American emergency airlift to Israel in 1973, the constant diplomatic support, the economic and military assistance, and the strategic bonds between the two countries can all be credited to the seeds planted by LBJ. End of quote. The article also mentions that research into Johnson's personal history indicates that he inherited his concern for the Jewish people from his family. His aunt, Jessie Johnson Hatcher, a major influence on LBJ, was a member of the Zionist Organization of America. In an additional note, the article said... The facts indicate that both of Lyndon Johnson's great-grandparents on the maternal side were Jewish. The line of Jewish mothers can be traced back three generations in Lyndon Johnson's family tree. There is little doubt that he was Jewish. End of quote. The Jewish and the Israeli press occasionally refer to Johnson's secret Jewishness and often remember with gratitude his Israel-friendly policy. Whatever was the reason of Johnson's loyalty to Israel, it is a fact that, thanks to Johnson, Israel could acquire its first atomic bomb somewhere between 1965 and 67, and carry out its plan to annex Palestinian territories beyond the boundaries of the United Nations partition plan. By leaning on the Pentagon and CIA Oaks, who had previously been bridled by Kennedy, Johnson intensified the Cold War and created the climate of tension which Israel needed in order to demonize Egyptian President Nasser and reinforce Israel's own stature as an indispensable U.S. ally in the Middle East. During the Six-Day War of 1967, Israel managed to triple its territory while creating the illusion of acting in legitimate defense to the applause of the American press. The lie could not deceive American intelligence agencies, but Johnson had given the green light to Israel's attack and even authorized James Angleton of the CIA to give Israel the precise positions of the Egyptian air bases, which enabled Israel to destroy them in just a few hours. Four days after the start of the Israeli attack, Nasser accepted the ceasefire request from the UN Security Council. It was too early for Israel, who had not yet achieved all her objectives in terms of conquest. That is when, on June 8, Israel attacked the USS Liberty, an unarmed NSA spy ship stationed in international waters of Sinai.
0: They drop napalm and strafe its decks with rockets, cannon fire, and armor-piercing rounds before trying to sink it with torpedoes. We had no way to defend ourselves, and it was just, we were just slaughtered.
1: The ship was bombed, strafed, and torpedoed during 75 minutes by Israeli mirrored jets and three torpedo boats, while Johnson from the White House intervened to prohibit the nearby 6th Fleet from rescuing it. Even the lifeboats were machine-gunned. The attack would have been blamed on Egypt if it had succeeded, that is, if the ship had sunk and its crew had been exterminated. The operation would then have given Johnson a pretext for intervening on the side of Israel against Egypt. But it failed. The U.S.'s liberty affair was suppressed by a commission of inquiry headed by Admiral John Sidlin McCain II, father of John McCain III, who recently supported ISIS terrorists against Syria. Everyone in the national security team recommended uh, arming ISIS. Johnson accepted Israel's spurious targeting error explanation. What's more, Johnson rewarded Israel by lifting the embargo on offensive military equipment. U.S.-made tanks and aircrafts immediately flowed to Tel Aviv. This failed false flag attack is evidence of Johnson's secret complicity with Israel, implying high treason against his own country.
0: Many of Johnson's closest friends and advisors were pro-Israeli, and they reported back to Tel Aviv on his every move. The Israeli story constantly shifted to counter whatever new intelligence the White House received. So sensitive were these communications that the Israelis used code names to protect the identity of their White House agents. But for the first time, the members of the ring can be named. Hamlet was a million dollar fundraiser for the Democrats. When he rang, Johnson took his calls. He was Abe Feinberg. Menashe was Arthur Goldberg, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Harare was David Ginsburg, a high profile Washington lawyer who also represented the Israeli embassy. Ilan was Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas. Lyndon Johnson had dinner with him on the eve of the Six Day War. The strategy worked. The U.S. Israeli relationship proved to be stronger than the killing and injuring of more than two hundred americans
1: in conclusion besides the fact that john and robert were brothers their assassinations have at least two things in common johnson and israel First, their deaths are precisely framed by Johnson's presidency, which was also marked by other political assassinations, such as Martin Luther King's. Johnson was in control of the two investigations on John and Robert's murders. Secondly, in both cases, the central element that contradicts the official story strongly suggests the implication of the Israeli deep state. In the case of Robert, it is the choice of the manipulated Patsy, which was obviously meant to disguise Robert's assassination as an act of hatred against Israel. In the case of John, it is the identity of the man tasked with killing the Patsy, a Jewish gangster linked to the Ergun. These two common elements in the Kennedy assassinations, Johnson and Israel, are themselves closely linked because Johnson was a man acting for Israel, just like Ruby, although at a higher level. The evidence for Johnson's secret loyalty to Israel includes his high treason in the USS Liberty Affair. The causal link between the two assassinations then becomes clear. Even if Robert had been pro-Israel, which he was not, Israel and Johnson would have had a compelling reason to eliminate him before he got to the White House and reopened the investigation on his brother's death. In order to solve the mystery of John Kennedy's assassination, we simply have to look into the two other assassinations that are connected to it. On the one hand, the assassination of Oswald, the man whose trial could have exposed the real plotters, and on the other hand, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the man who would have reopened the case if he had reached the White House. And both of these assassinations bear the signature of the Israeli deep state. The Kennedy assassinations are obsessing the American psyche and corrupting its character. The sense of a terrible truth hidden by the government is making America deeply neurotic, like a repressed family secret affecting the whole personality. This lie buried into the deep state has rendered Americans vulnerable to other lies, just like any lie creates a predisposition for new lies and even the need for more lies to cover it up. Having fallen deeper and deeper under the control of Israel, America is now morally corrupt and haunted by its own lies. Conversely, exposing one lie will make other lies fall one by one, That explains why there is still today, more than 50 years later, a determination from the corrupt American Zionist-controlled leadership to keep the truth hidden. This is also why unveiling the truth about the Kennedy assassinations is so crucial and will lead inevitably to unveiling the truth about 9-11 and to a new awareness about the other lies by which the United States and the world have been drawn into wars against the enemies of Israel. Carl Jung, the psychologist of the collective unconscious, said that the mythical character of a life expresses that it has a historical significance. The life and death of the Kennedys have such a mythical dimension. The Kennedy dynasty embodied the Irish Catholic root and branches of the American people, with all that it represents in terms of antagonism to English Puritanism, the most Judaized branch of Christianity. His antagonism goes back to the martyr of Ireland and the British oppression. During the Second World War, the Republic of Ireland remained neutral, refusing to ally itself to the British. Joseph Kennedy was then a leading figure of the isolationist. Like Charles Lindbergh, he believed that wealthy Jews were pushing the Roosevelt administration into total war against Germany. After the war, an increase in Jewish cultural influence and a decline of the Irish Catholic voice could be observed. In that context, the presidency of John Kennedy was, in the collective psyche and the destiny of the United States, of great spiritual significance. This metahistorical significance of the Kennedys did not escape the Zionist Jews inhabited by the supremacist geopolitical project of their ancient scriptures and placing all their hopes in their ability to influence U.S. foreign policy in favor of Israel. There is in the Kennedy tragedy a providential meaning. This is why the light on this affair will mark the beginning of the end of the mental control exercised by the Zionist movement on America and the West in general. One day, hopefully, the Kennedy brothers will receive in the United States the national recognition they deserve as heroes and martyrs in the fight against Israel's global crime. President Kennedy's son, John Kennedy Jr., embodied the Kennedy myth in the heart of all Americans. The route seemed traced for him to become president one day. He died on July 16, 1999, with his pregnant wife and his sister-in-law, when his private plane suddenly and mysteriously nosedived into the ocean, a few seconds after he had announced his approach on Martha's Vineyards Airport. John Jr. was literally born with the Kennedy presidency. From the minute he came into this world, he had been in the national spotlight. As Americans watched him grow up in the White House, they developed a strong affection for him. The iconic image of little John John saluting his father's coffin on the day of his third birthday encapsulated a nation's grief and impressed on millions of Americans the dream of seeing him reclaim the Oval Office one day. For in the American collective psyche, the Kennedys represented royalty, and JFK Jr. was the legitimate heir to the throne. In 1995, John launched his political magazine, George. Under the appearance of superficiality, it engaged in controversial issues of deep politics that reflected John's interest for conspiracy issues. For example, in December 1996, George was the only mainstream magazine exploring the inconsistencies of the official report on the explosion of flight TWA-800 soon after leaving JFK International on July 17, 1996. The National Transportation Safety Board claimed it was an accident, although 375 witnesses saw one or two bright flare objects hit the plane, many of them believing it was a missile. Israeli intelligence had actually tried to put the blame on an Iranian missile, but some investigators believed this was in fact a failed Israeli false flag attack designed to force the United States into retaliating against Iran. In March 1997, George published an article by the mother of Yigal Amir, the man convicted of assassinating Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, claiming that her son had been manipulated by Israeli deep state operatives. In October 1998, John Kennedy Jr. released a special conspiracy issue of George magazine, which included an article by film director Oliver Stone. According to testimonies from his friends, John Jr. was haunted by the death of his father and quite knowledgeable about independent investigations about it. At age 39, John was preparing his entry into politics and he was about to announce it publicly. He had also expressed to his friend his ambition to ultimately reach for the presidency. While trying to shield him from celebrity, his mother Jackie had raised him in the worship of his father, and in the idea of his own presidential destiny. According to his biographers, in 1999, John had made up his mind to launch his political career. Given his personality and his immense popularity, he had high chances to make it to the presidency in less than 20 years. John Jr. would have started his political career in New York, the city he loved and that loved him. According to some of his friends, he would have aimed at the seat of governor in 2003. According to others, he had decided to run for the New York Senate seat in 2000. This is the seat that his uncle Bobby had occupied from 1964 to 1968 and that Daniel Moynihan, a former assistant to President Kennedy, was going to leave vacant in 2000. John's chances were great. According to his biographer, Christopher Anderson, John's plan interfered with Hillary Clinton's. The Clintons, who were to leave the White House in January 2001, had just purchased a home in New York State, and Hillary was gearing up to run for the Senate as a stepping stone to her own presidential future. Hillary had never resided in New York State before, and her chances to beat John Jr. were very weak. John's death allowed her to win the seat. Has the American Zionist criminal deep state perceived the danger that John Jr. represented from the moment he started his political career? Many elements suggest that his death had not been an accident. Several witnesses testified having heard or seen his plane explode. Its sudden and steep fall cannot be explained as a pilot's error, as claimed by the official report. On the order of President Clinton, the rescue and recovery missions were conducted under national security conditions by the Navy, and the investigation was supervised by the same people in the National Transportation Safety Board who had falsified the investigation on TWA 800. Once the bodies were recovered, no autopsy was conducted. They were cremated and their ashes scattered at sea in a Navy ceremony, although this was not in the tradition of either families. John would certainly have wished to be buried besides his father and mother.